But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. They called him the Flying Scotsman, and at a race near Stoke-on-Trent in 1922, the young rugby player from the University of Edinburgh certainly lived up to his reputation. His real name was Eric Little, and he's probably best remembered as the young man of deep religious conviction who chose service to God before service to king and country in the 1981 film Chariots of Fire. Now, many people may not realize, however, is that even before he won a gold medal, set a new world's record, and led his nation to victory in the 1924 Paris Games, Eric Little was already a man who had a reputation for finishing well. You see, on this particular occasion near Stoke-on-Trent, Eric was competing with athletes from all over the United Kingdom, men and women who were vying for a coveted spot on the new Olympic team. Eric himself was slated to compete in the 440-yard run, a race that everyone expected he was going to win hands down. But when the starting gun went off, a most unfortunate and unhappy event occurred. One of the other runners, in an act of aggression, tripped Eric. His feet became tangled, he lost his balance, and he took a hard fall in the infield. And by the time he got to his senses and was back on his feet, the other runners were about 20 meters down the track. A great groan went up from the crowds and shouts of foul, foul could be heard all across the stands. Everyone thought that it was a tragic end to an otherwise promising athletic career. What many people didn't know, however, was that Eric Little was no quitter. In an instant, he was back on the track and running again. One man who had witnessed the entire thing, turned to his friend from Glasgow and commented that it was a fool's errand. He said it was simply impossible for Eric to make up a deficit in this kind of a race with competition like that. But the man from Glasgow, who had seen Eric compete on any number of occasions without even taking his eyes off the track, simply replied, Ah, just watch, lad. His head's not back yet. And that's when it happened. Eric Little had what can best be described as an unorthodox running style. He would cock back his head, open wide his mouth, and with arms flailing at his side, he would take off. Eyewitnesses said it was like watching Mercury with wings on his feet. Bit by bit, stride by stride, step by step, Eric began to close the gap with the pack of runners. In fact, he not only closed the gap, and caught up with the pack, but as they rounded the final bend, straining every muscle, every sinew, Eric was neck and neck with the lead runner. And then in the final moment of the race, in one great heroic burst of energy, he threw forth his chest, threw back his head, and broke through the finish line before collapsing, hyperventilating on the hard cinder track. The crowd went wild. Nobody had ever seen a race like that. A professional trainer who was there that day helping Eric to his feet was heard to say, Well, Mr. Little, that wasn't the prettiest 440 I've ever seen, but it certainly was the bravest. Finishing well. I tell you that story of Eric Little today because finishing well is really what today's epistle lesson from Hebrews is all about. 
For while it's true that we all want to start off well, whether that be in life, in our careers, or in our Christian walk, the Bible reminds us that what is even more important is not how we start, it's how we finish. It's how we finish the race of life that makes all the difference. You know, history is filled with examples of people who have started off well. That is, people who showed great promise, great potential, people from whom great things were expected, but people who for one reason or another did not finish well at all. The example that springs to my mind is the example of Israel's first king, Saul. If you remember your Old Testament, you'll know that Saul was a man who started off very well indeed. He was strong, handsome, courageous on the battlefield, highly respected by his fellow man. Moreover, we're told the Spirit of the Lord rested on Saul. And in the opening years of his reign, the nation went from strength to strength, triumphing over her enemies, the Philistines. But then something sad happened. Saul began to lose perspective. He became conceited, puffed up, proud. He thought that it was only by his might, not by the grace of God, that he had done these things. He began to rebel against the commandments of God, and in the end, we're told the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. And when he did, Saul lost everything. He lost his kingdom to David. He lost the respect of his subjects. He lost his mind. He went insane. And in the end, he lost his own life. He ultimately committed suicide in a battle with his ancient foes, the Philistines. Here was a man who started off well, such potential, but he did not finish well, and his life serves as a cautionary tale. And yet, while history certainly records the examples of people like Saul, it also records the opposite, doesn't it? It records the examples of those who may not have started off all that well, but because they finished well, are numbered among the greats. Certainly the best example of this has to be the Apostle Paul. Just think about St. Paul for a moment. It's hard to imagine anyone starting off worse than Paul did. As a Pharisee, he had persecuted the church. He had gone out systematically dismantling Christian communities, arresting men, women, and children. He presided over the death of the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. And even at the time of his conversion, on the road to Damascus, the book of Acts says he was still breathing out murderous threats against the followers of the way. And yet I ask you, are these the things that Paul is remembered for today? Do we remember Paul as a persecutor of the church? Do we remember Paul as the murderer of Stephen? Do we remember Paul as a man who hated the gospel? No, if we remember Paul for anything at all, we remember Paul as that one man who next to the Lord Jesus Christ did more than any other to advance the cause of the gospel. We remember Paul not as a persecutor of the church, but as one who was persecuted on behalf of the church. Do you know why that is? It's simple. It's because Paul may have started off poorly, but Paul finished well. He finished very well indeed. Writing to his young friend and protege, Timothy, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished 
the race. I have kept the faith, and there is now stored up for me the crown of life which the Lord Himself will give me on that day. Listen, folks, I want you to understand something this morning. No one is going to remember how well you started off if you do not finish well. Just as no one's going to remember that you were voted most likely to succeed by your graduating class if, in fact, you don't. But the opposite is also true. No one's going to remember how poorly you started off so long as you finish strong, just as no one's going to remember that you weren't voted most likely to succeed so long as you do. And that's what the author of Hebrews was trying to convey here in today's epistle lesson. This letter was written to Christians who had started off well. They'd heard the gospel. They'd rejoiced in the message of redemption and forgiveness in the blood of Christ. They were excited about Christian fellowship, excited about the church, excited about its programs. But as time went by, life settled into a routine. And by the way, life will do that. And as the demands of life began to mount up and temptations began to creep in, that initial ardor, that initial excitement began to dim. That initial enthusiasm and dedication to Christ began to wane. It came to the point where it was beginning to look as though this initial commitment to Christ had been superficial at best. So the author was writing to these Christians to encourage them not to lose heart, not to lose courage, not to fall to the wayside, keep their eyes fixed on the prize, and to finish well. And he does the same for us. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 24, speaking to his disciples. He said, but in the last days, because of the rise of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. But he who perseveres to the end will be saved. And so the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is this. If it's not how we start, but how we finish that really matters. What can we do as the followers of Jesus Christ to ensure that we don't fall to the wayside? That we don't get distracted? That we don't get disqualified? But like Eric Little and like the Apostle Paul, finish well. Now that's what I want to share with you in the time that we have remaining. When an athlete begins to train for an athletic competition, and we've seen some marvelous athletes over the course of the past few weeks watching the Olympics, but when an athlete begins to train for a competition, whatever that may be, there are certain disciplines that have to be introduced into his or her life. There are certain hours that have to be kept, certain diets that have to be maintained, certain exercises that have to be endured. And the same is true when it comes to our spiritual life as Christians, the race that we are running. And incidentally, the Christian life is often depicted that way, as an athletic competition, as a race. There are certain spiritual disciplines that you and I need to introduce if we are going to finish well. And what are they? Well, the author of Hebrews mentions a number of things. First of all, if we're going to finish well, we have to maintain focus. We have to keep our eyes fixed on the prize. Athletes, really good athletes, will tell you 
that when you are in a race to the finish, you cannot be distracted. Runners especially will tell you, as you're coming down that home stretch and you can see the finish line, the one thing you dare not do is take your eyes off it. You dare not look to the right or to your left or over your shoulder to see where the other competitors are because if you do, in a race like that, where even the fraction of a second can spell the difference between victory or defeat, winning or losing, that momentary sideways glance can be fatal. Well, the same is true in the Christian life, except what's at stake is much more than a medal or a trophy. What's at stake is our very soul. And that's why the author of Hebrews two chapters later said, so let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, Jesus is the prize. He's the finish line. And we have to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And the problem for us, American Christians I think in particular, is that there are just so many things that would distract us. especially because we are affluent people. Now, you may not think of yourself as an affluent individual, but I'm here to tell you this morning, you are. We are among the most affluent people who have ever lived. And affluence is not a sin, but it certainly is a liability. This is why Jesus said it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's because all of these things that we have have a tendency to distract us. To turn our eyes away from that which really matters. And if you don't believe me, just think about something as mundane as the television set. Now how many of you and I want to see a show of hands this morning. How many of you have a TV in your house? At least one. And most of us have more than one, don't we? And they're normally those flat screen, high definition, plasma televisions with all the accoutrements that go along with it. All the streaming services, Netflix and BritBox and you name it. Do you know the average American spends five hours every day watching television? Five hours. And that does not include the other screen time that we have on our devices. The average American spends over three hours every day on just the internet. So that's about eight hours every day in front of the screen. And yet we come to the end of the day and have we spent as much as 15 minutes in prayer? How often do we find time to fit in one more round of golf? One more tennis match? Only to discover before we fall into bed that we haven't spent any time reading God's Word, that He might speak to us. Here's one for the parents. How often do we run ourselves ragged? going to that recital, or that tryout, or that game, only to discover when Sunday rolls around that we simply do not have the energy to pull ourselves out of bed, get our children ready, and go to church, especially if it's raining outside. Now, 
Now listen, folks, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty this morning. You may feel guilty, but that's not my intention. Truth be known, I'm not much better than anyone else when it comes to these things. I confess that there are some Sundays when the only reason I get up and go to church is because, well, I'm the rector. (laughs) But you get the point, don't you? How easily distracted we are from the things that really matter. What does it profit a man, Jesus said, if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? If we're going to finish well, my friends, we have to keep our eyes fixed on the prize. As the old saying goes, you have to keep the main thing, the main thing. Looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Here's the second spiritual discipline that is essential to a strong finish. It is time spent with fellow believers. You may have noticed that when Jesus sent out his disciples, he always sent them out two by two. Even when he sent out the 70, he sent them out in pairs. Jesus apparently never sent anyone out alone. And do you know why that is? It's because you and I need each other. We need fellow believers, fellow Christians. Now, I know there are those times when we may not like other Christians. I know there are those times when we do not want to be with other Christians, but that in no way changes the fact that you and I need other Christians. It is only in the context of community that we grow. This is the furnace through which Christ refines us, transforming us ever more into the image of His Son. This is why the author of this letter says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When I was in high school, I ran cross-country And cross-country is really a team sport. Some of my happiest memories from high school are the time that I spent with my teammates. Many people, I think, imagine running to be an individual sport. That's true for sprinters, but it's not true for long-distance runners. And because the race took place over the course of many miles, and because we ran as a team, that gave us the opportunity, even if somebody was faster than somebody else, to encourage one another. I might be growing weary at mile two, but one of my teammates would come along, pat me on the back, and give me a word of encouragement, and it would keep me going. Life can be hard. It can be difficult. It can be unpredictable. And you cannot make it through without the encouragement of other Christians. This is one of my great concerns about the pandemic It has been so isolating. And while there have been times when it has been necessary to live stream the service so that people can participate, the fact remains that is no substitute for being in the context of Christian community. This is the only means by which we will grow into the full stature of Christ. So if you want to finish well, do not neglect time with other Christians. You need them, and they need you if we're going to finish this race. And here's the third discipline for finishing well. 
Remembering. Remembering what? Remembering just how far you've already come. Remembering just how far God has already brought you. I've never run a marathon. I have no desire or intention to run a marathon. But I have a good friend who has. And I asked him what it was like, and he said, well, the first 21 miles are a piece of cake. He said, when I got to mile number 22, I wanted to sit down and cry. He said, everything in my body was on fire. Every muscle ached. I said, well, why didn't you give up? He said, because I thought how far I'd already come. I'd come 22 miles. I only had four miles to go. I was not going to stop then. Well, if you're a Christian, I encourage you to consider how far God has already brought you. You've not run this race alone. You persevere because He perseveres within you. But listen to what the author says. He says, but recall the former days after you were enlightened, how you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. But God brought you through. And He who has begun this good work in you will see it through to completion. So do not stop. Do not give If you're a believer today, I want you to understand you are engaged in a race. It is a race to the finish, and it is not a race over the course of yards or miles. It is a race over the course of years. So let me encourage you this morning. Keep your eyes fixed on the prize. Don't be distracted by the things of this world. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Don't neglect the time that you need to spend with fellow believers, encouraging them and being encouraged. And when the warfare is fierce, and when the road is long, remember that He who brought you this far will take you the rest of the way. And let's press on, brothers and sisters. Let's press on. And let's finish well. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, Jesus Christ, who is the bishop of our souls, but the author and perfecter of our faith, our great reward. Grant us the grace, the presence of your Holy Spirit to press on, even when the going gets tough, press on to the end. But like Eric Little and like the Apostle Paul, we may be numbered among the greats, numbered among those who maybe, even if we didn't start off well, finished well indeed. We ask this for Jesus' sake and for His glory and in His name. Amen.